Welcome to another episode of The Raven Narratives. I'm Sarah Severson. And I'm Tom Yoder. We're the co-producers of The Raven Narratives. The stories you're about to hear were told at our Story Slam in June at the Powerhouse Science Center in Durango when the theme for the evening was animals. Story Slam events feature willing audience members who tell their stories on stage that are related to the theme. Our first storyteller of the evening was Nevada Benton. My name is Nevada, and I was just going to tell a couple of stories about whales, wide-eyed about whales. And so I'll go chronologically, so I'll try not to um, lose my place. Um, I got invited by a friend to go to Baja, and at the time I was in university, I had no money, and I bought a jar of peanut butter and hopped on a Greyhound bus, got to the border, and hitchhiked the rest of the way down. And when we got there... Um, she said, well, how about we kayak across the bay? You know, I hear there's some whales out there. And I was like, oh, so happy and thankful for my jar of peanut butter because then I could afford to rent a boat. And I got into the, <laughs> so we, we got out there, we got into our boats, and we timed the tides, you know, when, so that we could, like, ride it and then make sure that we could get back and not have to stay out there without any gear. And sure enough, we saw some whale spouts. And paddled as fast and hard as we could to get to the whales. And then before we knew it, they were right there. And there was a big tail in front of my little kayak just in my, just, and I was just like, and I, for a moment I thought, oh, what if I swim? What if I flip? What if I swim? What if I flip? And then just, I saw the, the, just the back of the whale just right underneath my, my boat. And then I, I looked down and sure enough, there was its eye, and my face was reflected right in its eye. And it just carefully just went down and away. So that's whale story number one. I don't know what my time is. My whale story number two. <laughs> my whale story number two was, um, let's see, chronologically, would be Antarctica. I was working down there doing science support and working, partnering with the Coasties, and that's a whole other story, the Coasties and their delphines. They're the helicopters with the terrible rotors, and we had to spread out these tarps. They were, like, difficult to work with. That's a another story, but I happened to be partnered with them, which didn't necessarily mean that I had a good partner. So I was kind of dragging my feet to get into their bird and um, head out, and then um, benefit of being a single woman, with a one to eight ratio, I got to sit in the front seat. So I was like, yes! And so I was sitting in the front seat of the Delphine, and we, and we were going, we weren't allowed to go over any open water. Um, but there was, right at the edge of the Ross, the Ross Sea there, right at the edge, it was starting to crack and break open, and there were these big, beautiful, just dark blue, just, just water coming up out of the cracks. And we could see some, a pod of, killer whales coming in there and I saw the I was like looking at the pilot looking at the whales and I was just like and you know and and he just zipped just just out a little bit and just stepped down just a little bit just so we could see the the arch of their back just in the largest most pristine wilderness on the planet it was just so powerful to see their fins whale whale story number three and then I'll be wrapping it up 
uh, Alaska. We, my husband and I, were in a little apartment, uh, Metlakatla, um, southeast Alaska, south of Ketchikan, and our uh, apartment flooded. And the upper, we were on the upper floor, and it crushed into the bottom floor. And so it crushed in, so we were, I was like thankful to not be sleeping in my classroom. I'm a public school teacher. And our friend, um, a native elder who was an arts craftsman, had a condemned house on the beach. And he said, you can live in it. And it was all plywooded up on three sides. And there was this big, beautiful glass window. And then this deck sloping into the, sloping right onto the ocean. The downside was that it was plywooded up, there was no heat, and then I had a garden hose coming through the kitchen into the sink with unheated water, and, um, and that every low tide you had to dig out the sewer pipe, because otherwise it would and like flood the, um, flood the house. So one morning I was in my poof coat, feeling sorry for myself with my hot coffee, uh, looking out the one window that wasn't plywooded, and I was like, that's crazy. There was three killer whales. So I like went out on the porch and I was like, that's crazy. They're coming closer. They're coming closer. And then one just spy hopped me, just spy hopped. And I was like, oh, I'm like, I am, a, I am an ugly seal, but probably, <laughs> but probably so much more delicious and, and backed up with my coffee. And so with these little whale stories, um, my takeaway was that when, the, when, the, when somebody knocks at the door, open the door, you know, from my first story. Um, it never hurts to break the rules a little bit for the second story. And um, the third one, a little bit of hardship sometimes is well worth it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Nevada, for sharing that story with us. Our next storyteller at the Raven Narrative's Animals Story Slam was Gabriel Bernier. Here on the edge of all this natural space that, that, where we live, um, a lot of us, we talk about mountain lions and we talk about bears, right? And these are important things to be concerned about. Um, but the real unsung terror of the wilderness, the herbivores. <laughs> Just wait. And this isn't a story told from the perspective of plants. This is my story. <clears throat> sure. So uh, I used to live in uh, Port Angeles, Washington, uh, out in the Olympic Peninsula. And uh, there's this hike that you could do up um, where you could get into the park, into Olympic Nas uh, National Park. Um, it was kind of the locals' trail because you didn't have to pay to get into the park. So I rode my bike up from town, ditched my bike in the woods, and was going to do this loop. And I um, was just like, excited about it, starting a deep, dark forest, you know, and you get up over a tree line and up on, on this ridge, and there was a lake in the hike, you know, that was going to be awesome, it was going to be everything, right? So, all right, so I cruise up, I'm feeling good about myself, and I'm stoked, too, because I'm, like, biking, and then I'm going to hike, right, and there's going to be, like, a 12-mile hike, and, you know, all this, like, elevation of the bike ride, so I was like, yeah, like, this is... I was like 25 or so, and so I was like, I'm going to be like tough guy about this, right, and do all these multi-sport things that I didn't even know about Durango yet. Um, 
chump change. Um, so anyway, so I get there, I ditch my bike, and I start on the hike, and it's great, and it's beautiful, and I'm surrounded by all these, you know, plants everywhere, right? It's the, it's the Pacific Northwest. So I cruise up, and I start to get to the point where the forest kind of breaks and gives way, and I get to tree line. I'm like, nice, awesome. It's starting to open up. There's wildflowers everywhere, and getting to this nice spot, get this vista. And then I look up ahead on the trail, and I see a mountain goat. So I'm like, all right, cool. Cool, he can chill. I'll just stand over here. I'll even look the other way. Just give him some space. He just wants to get easy, get comfortable, kind of probably smell me a little bit, you know, things like that, animal things. So I'll give him some space. I'll just check out these flowers. There's a nice larkspur here. That'll be great. I'll just check that out. And then I hear the drumming of hooves on the earth. <laughs> and I turn, and the goat is running at me. <laughs> so I panic, and I run like hell. I just run. I didn't think about it. I just run. And I can still hear the goat. I actually can still hear the goat to this day, but I can hear the goat in that moment. Just running, I'm running, I'm just like switchbacks. It's like quarter mile. I'm just like running. I don't know what's going on behind me. I can hear it, I can feel it, I can like imagine its breath on my neck, all of it. You know, I imagine its glowing horns, everything, right? <sighs> Come tear assing down the hill, down the trail, and, I, and I get back kind of into the trees a little bit, into this little almost den like little space. As I come around the corner, there's a little area, and there's three women, um, about maybe like their 60s, something, you know, sitting eating lunch. And I come screaming around the corner, right? <laughs> One of them gets up, hey, is something chasing you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, something's chasing me. What is it? What is it? Goat. Really? Come on. So, taking that piece, I thought, well, let's, let's like, um, we're going to roll with that. You don't believe me? Let's, we'll put your money where the mouth is, right? And so that kind of thing. So I positioned myself on the other side of, of these ladies. <laughs> and uh, a minute later, the goat comes steaming down the trail. <laughs> that got him up pretty quick. Uh, goat comes skittering to a halt, right? Because now the goat's surprised because all of a sudden there's four of us. <laughs> Calculus has shifted a little bit. But the ladies were very surprised, and thankfully they had their um, they had hiking poles with them too. So they got out, all three of them. It was like one mind. They all three get up, they all three bring their poles up in the air and start smacking them against each other, shaking them around. I'm just shaking. The goat is kind of like, all right, all right, all right. And so he starts just kind of like ambling, right? Like he's just like, he's not leaving. He's not running. He just kind of starts pacing menacingly. <laughs> and kind of like, yeah, whatever, you might be four, but I haven't made up my mind yet. We're going to see how this is going to shake out. Yeah, a few minutes pass, a few more minutes pass. The goat, goat makes his way off into the, into the woods. The ladies finish their lunch and decide that they're going to hike down. Um, so they 
can, can, I, um, can I hike with y'all? That'd be okay. So, graciously, even though I human-shielded them, allow me to hike with them down a little ways. And, and as we start to get back to that, like, the thick, that thick, dark forest, I'm like, man, I, kinda, you know, I spent today, I wanted to get up here, I wanted to eat my lunch above tree line in this, you know, it was a rare opportunity of sunshine. I haven't had my sandwich yet, so let me sit down and have my sandwich. So I tell him, hey, I'm going to hang back. And hang up. Thank you. Thank you. So grateful. Hang back. Sit down and eat my lunch. I swear, in like three minutes, that goat comes out of the woods again. <laughs> so I get up big and tall. I learned from the ladies. I get up big and tall, waving my arms. I start cussing it out, like every kind of loud, mean-sounding thing I could come up with, throwing it at the goat. And I just take off again into the woods, like down, down, downhill, down into the woods, and um, didn't follow me, and, and, and made it out safely. But I am um, super grateful uh, that I, A, that I ran, B, that I ran into those ladies, uh, but a year later, that goat uh, killed a man, uh, just gored him. Uh, so there's, 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 there's some weight behind it. There's a lot of levity, but there's a lot of weight, too. I'll leave you with that. Thanks, Gabriel, for telling that story. Our next storyteller at the Raven Narrative's Animals Story Slam was Angelo Stan Campiano. I grew up in Alaska in the 80s. Um, actually, I was born in Oklahoma. When I was eight, we moved to Juneau, Alaska. And that was like telling me we were moving to the moon, I suppose, would be a way to equate that. It was uh, something I just couldn't comprehend uh, where Alaska was. Uh, and, and just getting there and, and being in this amazing um, wet climate in the southeast where Juneau is after being in the hot, humid um, Oklahoman sun. So it was a, it was a really great experience um, growing up, and uh, we, we moved from Juneau to Fairbanks in the mid-80s, and um, just a, a completely different environment there. Uh, very dry, dry, so dry in the winter you could sweep a foot of snow right off of your uh, porch. Maybe we had a little bit of that here, I don't know, this, this last winter. Not quite sweepable, though. Um, yeah, so just a, a, some great places to grow up, a lot of interaction with, with different animals growing up in Alaska. Um, let's see. So one memorable event, among many others, was uh, one summer when my cousin David came to visit. And that was, that was different because usually it was all of us going back to Oklahoma to visit family. We did that every summer pretty religiously. That was like our family uh, vacation. I was going back to see family in Oklahoma. Great fun. <laughs> Actually, we loved it because we got to see all of our cousins, and that was always a hoot. Um, but this year, my cousin David was coming to visit us, and uh, he came with my grandma and my grandpa. My grandpa uh, was blind, 
and um, so that was we had a lot of fun with him up there taking him for four-wheeler rides and taking him to see the the pipeline or feel the pipeline I suppose and and um, yeah great great times but there was this one time in particular while he was visiting that uh, we took the four-wheeler and the four-wheeler was basically our freedom in the world my older brother Jeremiah and I um, I was about 14 when this was when we were riding it a lot and it was our way of getting out we would ride the pipeline roads we would go to gravel pits and go swimming and it was just a really amazing way to um, to get out and be free as a, as a young teenager um, I, I think I'm just kind of at this point in my life in my mid-40s realizing how how blessed I was to grow up there and to have these experiences um, and a lot of craziness that went along with it. Uh, those are some other stories, I suppose. But uh, my cousin and I was super excited to show him this four-wheeler and all these trails that I had found and, and uh, take him out on it. So we hop on the four-wheeler one day, and uh, we go out, and we're driving all over the place, way back into the, the, the backwoods and, and exploring new trails. There was always, like, another trail you could always find in Alaska. Um, and in Alaska, beside every road, there is a four-wheeler trail. Um, if you've ever been there, like if you're driving along a road, you always look over and there's just a trail next to it, usually just down off the road, that's a four-wheeler trail. Oh, well, in the wintertime, it's a snow machine trail. Um, so we're, we're riding that. We get out of ways. We're in the middle of nowhere. <clears throat> Took most of the day to just go explore, have fun, show them what I, what I love to do. And we're on our way back. We're pretty tired. It's a little later in the day. And we're coming through a real thick area of, um, of birch. And it was pretty rutted out. And we were going really slow around some, some trees. And we came around a corner. And there was a 50-foot moose. Or it felt about 50 <laughs> feet high from that four-wheeler. And we were very, very close and just looking up at this thing. And, it just felt massive. Um, I, I still remember it so well, so vividly, and the, the sun was behind it. It looked like a shadow that had just kind of come out of nowhere. And um, I think we startled it. It startled us. I started drawing on all that um, knowledge that had been instilled in me at school about what you do when you run into a moose in the wild which is um, scream and yell, no, 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 that's not actually what you're supposed to do. That'd probably scare the moose more. You, uh, you hide behind a tree if there's a tree. Um, they don't have very good eyesight. And so I tried to, um, as I was getting off the four-wheeler and running away, I tried to tell my cousin what to do. Uh, he's, he's still kind of in the, in, the, in the lights. And I'm yelling, get behind a tree. And I'm running the other direction, and, uh, and I get behind a tree, and by the time I get behind a little skinny birch tree, because they're, they're not very big, and I'm just, I'm pretty skinny to begin with, but I'm sure I was still sticking out pretty well. Um, I turned around, and I don't see my cousin anywhere. And the moose is pretty aggressive at this point. It's stomping towards the four-wheeler. I left it running. Um, it didn't like that was coming around the four-wheeler. I thought for sure it had already trampled him and it was coming for me, but I used my training well and I stood 
extremely still behind a little bitty tree and it sniffed and it stomped and it moved all around but it never it never came and ran me over amazingly enough um, and I, I do think it was at least 10 feet tall <laughs> but I mean it did seem bigger and bigger as it got closer and I just waited and waited and waited and it finally got bored started moving off the the trail off into the brush and I started looking for my cousin at this point I didn't know if I was gonna have to you know go through the, the woods or drive ride my four-wheeler all the way home to find him and all of a sudden he crawls out from under the four-wheeler <laughs> and I said David oh my god you're okay I can't believe this and that thing was running the whole time um, and he was about as white as a ghost and he got on the four-wheeler and said, take me home. <laughs> and so, um, so I did. We got on the four-wheeler and, and rode home, uh, shaking pretty well, sweating the whole way. Um, it was a great story. We got back to the house. We got to tell everybody about this amazing adventure. And, um, you know, it, it was cool for him being a, a kid from Oklahoma to come up there and have this experience and to be able to share that with his grandma and grandpa and everybody else. And, and uh, one thing that was really cool after he left, or, or before he left, he tried again to get under that four-wheeler after we were home. And everything he could do, he could, he could not get under that four-wheeler. <laughs> but it just goes to show, I guess, that in the moment, about anything's possible. I don't know, maybe he had lifted it up a little with his body or something, which he couldn't do back at the house. Um, that's my story. Thank you, Angelo, for telling that story. Our next storyteller at the Raven Narratives Animals Story Slam at the Powerhouse Science Center in Durango was Dan Jenkins. <laughs> Um, let's see. Um, I thought about some different stories I could talk about for uh, animals tonight, and I kind of like the three-part story, so that's kind of kind of interesting. First one will be really short. Last uh, last summer, I was with some friends over, over on uh, Muley Point camping, and uh, it was it was a hot day, but it was a cool night. And uh, when I woke up in the morning, I lifted up my mat and I saw this little scorpion skirt out from underneath it. It had been like hanging out there all night underneath of my pillow, and uh, <laughs> went its way and I went mine and I took a little picture and that was that so that's uh that's my first animal story uh summer before I had uh I had been uh helping a friend's son to learn a little bit about climbing we were over in the San Luis Valley at Penitente Canyon which is kind of notorious for having a lot of rattlesnakes and uh, I'm looking at the guidebook to look up at the wall to figure out where we're going to go and they're behind me and I'm walking along and I guess I must have just timed it right because the snake, I never even saw it. I just like must have just put my head right like straight down like on the back of its head and just like in stride just kept walking and my friend is just freaking out. I mean, he just, he couldn't get the words out. He's like, stop, stop, stop. I'm like, what's going on? What's happening? And he's like, the snake. And I'm like, oh, okay. And then I just turned around and started walking up the trail some more. He's like, you stepped on it. You stepped on the snake. And I said, well, nothing happened. So <laughs> let's go. And uh, that's my snake story. So 
Um, but the one story when I thought about coming up here this evening and talking about animals was um, when I was, uh, I used to be an outward bound guide and um, I was up in the Uinta mountain range um, up uh, in Utah. And it's kind of a tiny range. It's not, it doesn't have a lot of really big peaks on it. So um, it doesn't really tend to see a lot of traffic. And for this um, expedition, um, we had several groups that were um, starting off at the trailhead, and I was the course director, so I was there kind of overseeing the whole program, but we were short-staffed enough that I didn't just go in for a quick field visit and check in on people. I was actually traveling with the groups to help support some of the other staff. And so typical on day one of these courses is um, you get everybody together, they've gotten off of the bus, and you're going to kind of do the, like the dual exchange. They're going to give us all their, you know, sort of you know, urban items, clothes and jeans and plane tickets and all that stuff and put it in their suitcase with the roll roller duffel. And then we're going to trade that for a backpack and food and sleeping bags and group gear and all that. So we go through and do all that. And I'm just kind of helping to manage things and get everybody ready to go for you know, their expedition. And these end up being pretty long days. I mean, they're days that really from the beginning to the end, especially because you probably haven't gotten much sleep the night before, you're just trying to pack so much in. So um, one, of my, uh, one of my Outward Bound colleagues, Dennis Lujan, used to have a little trick that he would do, which is the evening before he would stay up all night. You know, because he would just know that the first day was going to be crazy. He would stay up all night and pack all his food for resupplies and all that. He wouldn't get any sleep. He'd go right straight through to the next day. But by the time he got to that evening, didn't matter how much clamor there was or how much was going on, he hit the first night pillow and he would be out cold for the eight hours and never woke up until the next day. He had a great night's sleep the first night on the trail. So that was kind of a good technique. Um, I wasn't necessarily sure I was going to adopt that, but we kind of had a similar situation come up where we were just having such a long day and we were trying to push up the trail to get um, to the point where it was, it was a very interesting start because for the first three or four miles, it was pretty much just, you know, a steep set of woods that came up over here, a steep set of woods that came up over here, and we were just walking down this sort of like angled lower flat track in the valley. And it was just a trail. It wasn't much wider than where the seats are here. So there wasn't really great camping. And anything that was off of the trail was just super rocky and really not very good. So I was hiking with this instructor and the group. And by this point in time, it had just turned to dusk, and we're just charging up the trail. And we're just trying to find a campsite in the twilight. And it's just not happening. So we're just forging on and forging on. And finally, we're just looking at our watches. We're like, okay, 12, 15, 20, whatever we want to say, 20 minutes, we're going to be at a campsite wherever we're going to be. So we do that. We get to this place where we're like, this is going to be it for the night. So we just, you know, shoot off the trail, you know, maybe 50 yards, and we set our stuff down. And it's just, it's not great camping. So we're just telling people, listen, this is the first night. It's not going to rain. It's not going to do anything. You don't have to put up tarps or do anything. Just set your stuff down wherever you can find a flat spot between, like, rocks. And there wasn't really very many of those and find your place and I knew that I wanted to have a little distance away because the first night's kind of you know it can be a little bit you know people getting up and making noise and talking and all that so I had a, a 
place that I had set my sleeping bag down from the distance about here out to where the parking lot is. So it was about a minute and a half walk over to where my sleeping bag was. So I had gone over, set my stuff up, and came back, and then we cranked up the stoves and got all the food ready and made sure everybody was ready to go to bed and that they had been, like, you know, properly clothed because it was cooling down, et cetera, and just kind of getting them into the first evening of, you know, camp. And we cooked all the food for them and everything, and so we just basically just, like, wanted to tidy them up, put them to bed. And so during this whole craziness, like, I had just set my stuff up off to the side, and I told the other instructor, I'm just over here somewhere. Don't worry about me. I'll catch you in the morning, and we'll be cool. And so everybody went to bed, and I go over to my little spot, and I lay down, and I go to sleep, and I am just, like, I am out. I am so just, like, ready to go to sleep. So I just immediately, like, drop into a deep sleep. And... As I'm laying there, I have, like, you know, I'm just going off into slumberland, and I have no idea where I am. A lot of times I'm pretty aware of my surroundings. But all of a sudden, at one point, I hear this sound, and inside of, like, my primal being, something stirs. And all I do for my sleeping bag is I sit bolt upright, and I'm sitting there, and I look over, and I just give this big, loud, Roar! like that. Like, I am the animal, and I have to scare off this sound, which is near me, which was one of the students who was right there. And I had to pretend that I was a bear to scare her off. And I had no idea where this came from. But all of a sudden, in the, like, pitch black darkness I hear her yell at the top of her lungs Rah! and I see this flashlight go like scrambling running off through the woods and in my my basal brain I was like problem solved I went right back to sleep <laughs> completely went back to sleep did not go after did not find out what was going on I was like hey I have no, no problems anymore I'm just gonna go back to sleep so you know, fast forward in a couple, three, four hours, get up, go to breakfast, sitting there hanging out. People are like, oh my God, well, tell the story again. What happened? She was like, it was a bear. It was a huge bear. And it was this whole thing. And I was like, wow, really? There was a bear in camp last night? It's like, no shit, that is insane. And she was like, oh yeah. And she tells the whole story. And I was like, that was me. And she was like, what? And I said, now I remember. Now I remember. Yeah, that was me. It was right over in that direction, right? And yeah, I had to protect myself. And she was like, I mean, she was ready to strangle me. I mean, yeah. And um, so it all turned out to be good in the end. Everything worked out fine. And they had a great expedition. But uh, that was the beginning of it. And it was essentially the, uh, the bear that never was. So... <laughs> Anyway, here we go. Thanks, Dan, for telling that story. Our next storyteller at the Raven Narrative Story Slam at the Powerhouse in Durango was Andy Wingard. So, um, <clears throat> a few years ago, I was a sergeant in the jail. It's kind of tough, I thought. Uh, you know, carry a gun sometimes and had an attitude and 
I'd been with the sheriff's office for many years, so I thought I'd seen a lot of scary things, dealt with a lot of frightening things in my life. I was worked nights for many years, and uh, one night I came home and slept all day long. That's kind of my thing. I got up like two in the afternoon, you know, grabbed my phone, went to the bathroom, sitting there on the toilet, you know, doing Facebook, like, <laughs> like, like a lot of people do, I'm sure. <laughs> you know, kind of vulnerable, really, and, uh, you know, I'm hanging out, doing Facebook and everything. I get up, and I was like, oh, my God. There was a bat in the toilet. <laughs> He's just, like, hanging out in the bowl. Like, wow, really? <laughs> so I was like, ah! <laughs> oh, God, I don't know what to do. <laughs> Can't shoot it. <laughs> like, that would just be wrong. <laughs> oh, man, so I called my dad, you know, because that's what you do. <laughs> I was like, uh, there's a bat in the toilet. <laughs> I, it's, it's in there with, I don't know what to do. <laughs> he was like, well, you've got some gloves, right? <laughs> I was like, okay. He's like, I'll stay on the phone with you. I'm like, all right. <laughs> so I get my gloves on, and I'm like, oh, God. <sighs> I can do this. <laughs> I started sweating so bad. <laughs> it was terrible. I left the sea. I'm like, oh, just be kind. <laughs> I get it, pick it up, and it's like. <laughs> I guess and I was like, oh my God. <laughs> All right, Dad, I'm going outside. <laughs> Take him outside, and I'm like, oh, it's so bright out here, and he's. <laughs> like this, and I'm like, oh, it's all right, we're almost there. Find something. Don't run at me. <laughs> I did it, Dad. That's my story about bats. Thank you, Andy, for sharing your story with us. Our final storyteller at the Powerhouse Science Center in Durango at our Raven Narrative Story Slam when the theme was animals was Tracy Farmer. wanted this story to be about horses, like that horse in my life that I rode through all my childhood and adolescence, but I never had a horse. So <laughs> I wanted a horse so bad that I had a saddle and all the supplies. No horse. Um, and I got my first dog, my first dog, at age 10 or 11. And uh, my family was the kind that just, you have the dog in the garage. Not really dog lovers. They don't get to come inside. Um, but I, you know, and we had ducks and we had rabbits and I had a ferret at one point. And so lots of animals, but this dog, the first dog, and it's not even what the story's about. This is just a preface. So, um, but he was amazing and loyal. So I think I'm tying this in, loyalty. So this dog was so loyal, I would like, uh, 
ride my bike and he'd follow, he'd stay at school, everybody knew him. It was just, he was an incredibly loyal dog, St. Bernard Mix, uh, mutt. And, um, but uh, along like say 21 years old and I go to Alaska and get another dog and I name her Sally. I'm in Fairbanks and I pick up a dog, I'm living in a tent and uh, get this dog named Sally. And she becomes my best buddy. We live together in the tent and all this. And um, I had a lot of opportunity to train her. So that was fun because I just really took it seriously and really thought I did a good job. So a couple summers later, I'm in Alaska again, um, living in Arizona. And I fly up for the summer to do some river guiding. And we bring our dog. And it's a cool summer. She's, got, she's like a shepherd mutt mix big thick heavy coat and uh, she's awesome we live outside and she's just awesome with us the whole time so um, and she still has like kind of a nice winter coat as it stayed pretty cool all summer and what I didn't put together was that I would be flying back to Phoenix Arizona three in the afternoon in August <laughs> to go back to school and that's the first time I ever you know, took a dog on a plane, um, got a crate. We used to hitchhike all over this dog and I. We were just super good buds. But um, as the summer's rolling on, I'm starting to put this together. I've got this dog. She's not going to do well. And they tell me in the airplane, in the baggage, there's no temperature control. So I'm like, shit, <laughs> what am I going to do? This dog is going to die if I fly in and it's 113 degrees and it's 3 in the afternoon and it's August and she has a full winter, like practically a winter coat. So my mind starts thinking and I'm like, okay, well, one, for whatever reason, somebody had left their dog tags. And this is 20-some years ago, by the way. Um, not their dog tags, excuse me. Their medical tags. Maybe it was diabetes or something. But, aha, uh -huh, I have an idea. I'd also heard a radio program about a dog um, that could detect an epileptic seizure before, you know, someone with epilepsy has their seizure. So, aha. Uh -huh. <laughs> Thinking some more. And so I'm starting to put it together so I can be also quite tenacious. And I decide, that's it. I'm going to have a service dog. <laughs> She's coming on that plane with me. So I go to Anchorage beforehand. We're going to fly out and I get a, a nice... Uh, you know, the, uh, the what? No, not a vest. It's the, the harness for the dogs that pull, like sled dogs. And, but it has a nice little lead looking kind of like that full harness thing going on. I get that. I kind of have the tags on. Hopefully I don't look at them. You're not supposed to, I think. So. <laughs> I just got really creative. So I did. I, I said, I have a service animal. And I brought her on the plane. And one, she was very well behaved. And, and it worked. And I got her home. And I said, oh, my, you know, I had to. It was life or death for my dog. This was really a serious matter. But I did it again. <laughs> In fact, I made a card that actually had a logo that said, Freedom Barkers. <laughs> And it had her picture and my name with partner, Sally. And 
So I'm sorry for all people of different abilities that have a true service animal. I totally abuse this. This was me. All the rules now about service animals started with <laughs> my, my abuse. So originally, whereas it was a matter of, of true in loyalty and integrity, uh, it ended up being a little bit of abuse of power. But I just want to end with, um, so what, for one, Walking in the airport was awful because a service animal would walk in. I'd be like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Don't talk to me. Don't talk to me. But a sweet woman on the plane was so curious. Everybody's so curious about your dog. And she said, oh, well, that's so interesting. What does she do? How does she tell you? And I was like, oh, I didn't read that part. <laughs> I don't remember that in the interview. So I said, she barks three times and paws my leg. <laughs> with a serious face. So that was, uh, yeah, that was in, uh, an abuse of power on my part that I still to this day have a deep love and loyalty to my dogs just as much as they've given to me. So thank you, Alfie. Thanks, Tracy, for telling that story. To pitch your story for a future Raven Narratives event, fill out the contact form on our website at ravennarratives.org. A list of our live storytelling events in 2019 is also on our website on the events page. Subscribe to the Raven Narratives podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, and share these stories with your friends. If a particular story makes you laugh, cry, or look at your world with a little bit more clarity, please leave a comment and let us know. Big thanks to our photographer, McCarson Lee of Red Scarf Shots. Check out the portraits of our storytellers on the gallery page of the Raven Narratives website, and be sure to visit her website at redscarfshots.com. And thanks to our fiscal nonprofit sponsor, Mancus Valley Resources. Find out more about the wonderful projects they support in the Mancus Valley of Colorado at mancusvalleyresources.com. The website for buying Raven Narratives tickets, ravennarrativestickets.org, was created by Cortez Web Services. Check out how they can help your business online at cortezweb.com. And our theme music was written and composed by Mo Cooley and performed by Mo and the Motones. Find out more about their music on the Motones Facebook page. That's M-O-E Tones on Facebook. <laughs>